in front of you if you didn't bring one, or you can, if you like me, somebody raise your hand and somebody will bring one to you. Um, uh, we are in week three of this deal called Art of the Start, and how would you like to be the guy that cut Michael Jordan from the basketball team and forever be known as that guy? So this, this series is about humble beginnings, about the, the art of the start in the church and a very humble beginning. It was Jesus and 12 guys standing outside of Caesarea Philippi, and Peter saying that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that's where the idea of church started. And it was very humble, 13 men standing outside of this little town. And Jesus said that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then today, over 2 billion people will claim Jesus Christ as Lord. And so there are lots of things that these little humble beginnings, and then God uses to grow into these magnificent movements. And so you, by being here today, you are a part of that. And so we are studying the book of Acts for the next couple years of your life. And so that's where we'll be. Um, so I hope you're in Acts 2 by now. I want to say a couple of things. We don't, uh, we don't pass the plate here, so we do tithes and offerings at the end of the service by taking them to the boxes, either back here or back by the door. And last week, I, I just kind of shared with you a little anxiety on my part. And just to let you know, the Lord showed up in a mighty, mighty way. Um, God flexed His generosity on us. And last week's giving um, uh, was more than the other weeks combined together. So um, I just thought I would need to let you know that. Way to go. Also, I want to say to our students in our student section, uh, excited students, good. You should see the 9 o'clock crowd. They're like, hey, it's early, leave us alone. So, um, hey, want to make sure you guys sign up for the fall retreat. If you're high school and middle schoolers, if you're going on the fall retreat, there's information around you. If you're in high school or middle school and you're not in our student section, our students sit right over here. But in the Connect Center, that room in the back, when we're finished, you can sign up to go on the fall retreat. And the cool thing about fall retreat at the Church of 1122 is uh, we don't have a youth group, we just have a church, and some of our church people are students, and so all of our staff is going on the fall retreat, so that'll be cool, right? So the Martins and the Williams and the whole staff, the band, will all be there with you guys, so uh, please, please sign up for that. If you wait, you know, I'll kill you. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're going to talk about the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit comes upon everybody and some stuff happens, so I just want to see who I'm talking to real quick, because this will help me out. Uh, how many of you grew up in church? If you grew up in church, please raise your hand. Raise your hand, all right. Grace you out from Jacksonville, that's a lot of people. Uh, I didn't, so I'm in that, I didn't grow up in church camp. Um, uh, how many of you grew up uh, either Baptist, and I know there's like a hundred different types of Baptist, but we're just going to pretend like y'all are all in group, okay? So how many of you grew up like Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, that kind of deal, right? One of those mainline Protestant denominations. Okay, good. All right. Also sort of in the same game. How many of you grew up uh, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Catholic? That's you. All right. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Right. Made it feel a little bit better, didn't it? Okay. All right. All right. So that's sort of over in this group. How about on the other end of the spectrum? How many of you uh, grew up or your church tradition is like, Pentecostal, charismatic, holiness, Church of God, Assemblies of God. Can right? you raise your hand? Right? It's obviously the one that does the woo right there. Did anybody bring a tambourine? No tambourines? All right. So not as much there, a few of you, but glory. All right. Welcome. We're glad that you're here, too. So what we're going to do now is we're going to study uh, the book of Acts and what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. And I just needed to know who we had for you. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. The day of Pentecost arrived. That just means 50 days after the Passover. It was a Jewish festival or feast. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
rushing wind. Now, this is the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Spirit of God is like a wind. You can't see the wind. You can, you can see the effects of the wind. You can feel the wind. And the Spirit's that way, too, that you can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can feel the effects of the Spirit, and you can see where the Spirit is at work. And so this sounded like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we're going to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's, there's a couple of things here. First of all, this is the, um, the unleashing of the Holy Spirit to everybody who is a believer. So all of the believers in Jesus, all the disciples of Jesus, there's about 120 people in this room. The Spirit falls on them all. And now you know that the Spirit manifests Himself in different ways in different parts of the Scripture. But from now on, from this moment on, from the day of Pentecost on, the Holy Spirit is available and has been deposited in everyone that surrenders their life to the Lordship of Christ. Now, if you'll remember, uh, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends in what way? Anybody remember? A dove. The front row always knows. Okay, a dove. And then when the Spirit of God descends the dove and rests upon Jesus, the Bible says that the heavens open and God the Father says to God the Son, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then from that moment, Jesus goes out into the desert and proclaims the word of God one-on-one with the enemy. What you're going to find out here in, in Acts chapter 2 is that the Spirit descends on everybody. They profess the mighty works of God and then they go out and they proclaim the word of God. Big picture, you need to know this. There's two things that the Spirit does when the Spirit descends when we are full of the Spirit. First and foremost, God wants you to know that you are His, and in you He is well pleased. That when Jesus was baptized, this is very important. Some of you, this is all you need to hear this morning. That when Jesus was baptized, and the heavens open up, and the Spirit descends on Him like a dove, God says, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And it was before His ministry began. This is not like a midterm where he checks out, hey, you're doing pretty good, son. Keep up the good work, and then maybe at the end, I'll be pleased in you. This is before he's done anything for the kingdom, before he's preached the message, before he walked on water, before he did anything for the kingdom. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he knew that he was the Almighty Son of God and that the Father was pleased in him. Listen to me. If you are a Christian, if you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you need to hear this. Before the rest of this day is over, you need to know that you are a son or you are a daughter of the Most High God, and in you, He is well pleased. You don't have to earn what has already been paid for. If you have the Spirit, it's been paid for. And so, that's the first thing. And that's a part of what comfort means. When Jesus said, I'm going to send the Comforter, and that's a part of what that means, that, that you don't have to earn this favor of God anymore. That that's a part of what Jesus meant when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. Part of that rest for your soul is that you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you need to know that in you, God is well pleased. And then the, the next thing that happens in Jesus, after Jesus' baptism, is he goes out and preaches the word of God, and you'll see here, Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so the Spirit of God descends on the apostles and the disciples as a tongue, a tongue of fire. Why? 
because you remember from the first week of Art of the Start in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Bible says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so the Spirit comes in the form of a tongue of fire and rests on them. Why? Because the other thing the Spirit empowers us to do is to do evangelism or share our faith or proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth. And then it very clearly says right here that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we're going to talk about what does the Bible mean when it talks about speaking in tongues. All right, so those of you that raise your hand with the Baptist food, don't get nervous. What, I want to talk about two extremes first. If you raise your hand in that, like Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, and kind of over here, um, and, and there are some extreme points of view within that, within those denominations, that are what is called dispensationalists. And a dispensationalist believes that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is not available to the church anymore. That when the apostles died and when the Bible was canonized, that we no longer needed the manifestation of the Spirit, like gifts of miracles or gifts of prophecy or gifts of tongues, etc., etc. Right? So that's kind of that game. Now, I didn't grow up going to church, but when I did go to church, I would go to this little Southern Baptist church. And at that church, at my church, if somebody raised their hand during a song, then the deacon said to me, right? Because if somebody raised their hand during the worship service and then it was not immediately followed by either a question or being excused to go to the restroom, then they got nervous because they thought the next thing that's going to happen are the Pentecostals are going to get in our church and start speaking in tongues, and then our services will go along and the Presbyterians will be at lunch and we can't have that. They have to get together and talk about. Because Christians are notorious for getting together and voting on whether, on whether God can do what he's already done, right? Christians love to do that. So that's, that's sort of one camp called dispensational stuff. So I am not that. And in fact, the, the Bible, uh, the Bible talks about the Spirit of God being here and being among us. And that where, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, there's another extreme, too. And so if you raise your hand kind of in the tambourine clap, right? right like if you're holding this assembly of God, um, that kind of experience. There are, not, not everybody, but there are pockets of that that sort of are on the extreme the other way. And they will take the gift of tongues and elevate it to be like the premier gift. And if you have that spiritual gift, then your varsity and everybody else is JP. And that is the only evidence of being a true Christian. And everybody else is kind of riding pro coach, but if you speak in tongues, you're like in first class. And so, in essence, the problem with that is that if you, if you elevate the gift and make much of the person, then it's essentially what you can do is worship the gift instead of the one that gave the gift. So at the Church of 1122, let me tell you where we are, just so, because I know there's still people kind of checking out and seeing, you know, if you're going to fit in here. Let me, let me tell you where we are. So we're in neither extreme, okay? We believe in the full gifting of the Holy Spirit, full manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, you are free to be who God called you to be and to express the gifts God called you to express. Now, there's, there's some things that that means, though. That does mean that uh, it requires, it requires a, a great deal of maturity, of discernment, and you need to know what the Bible is talking about. And so when the Bible talks about speaking in tongues, it primarily is talking about three different types of 
one is what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. It's called Glossolalia. And in Acts chapter 2, we're going to study it in just a minute. Um, it's really about evangelism. It's not speaking in a language that nobody can understand, but what we're going to see is that these men and women spoke, and all the people that were there in the crowd, they heard not an unintelligible language, but they heard the gospel presented in their own language. And I can tell you, I've prayed for this gift before. Uh, two years ago, we were in Uganda, and we just built a house for this guy. And in Uganda, and a lot of third world countries you can't do everything without a dedication service, so we're about to dedicate this guy's house. And so before I prayed for the guy's house, I asked, is this guy a Christian? And our uh, translator asked him, and no, he had not surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I asked our, our guy that was translating for us, I was like, hey, why don't you just share the gospel with this guy? And then I'll get out of the way, and you just tell him about about what Christ did on the cross for him. And so our guy, our friend named Paul, he starts sharing in Lugandan with this new homeowner the gospel. And so as he starts speaking in Lugandan and sharing the gospel, I am praying, God, I have read the book from beginning to end, the whole thing. I know that you can move in a mighty way and that I could, like in Acts chapter 2, I could begin to understand what Paul is saying, not the Apostle Paul, but our African friend Paul, that, that I can understand in my own tongue. And I am praying, Lord, let me understand this. And all I heard was like, yeah, but never do, right? That's all I got. And I'm begging Jesus, come on, let me hear this. And he didn't want to. So, but that, that's one, one kind of speaking in tongues that, that the Bible talks about. And, but I will tell you this, that while, while he was sharing the gospel in Lugandan with this guy, said, um, I, I didn't understand the word, but my it was like my bones were on fire. Like my heart was beating fast. I knew that the gospel was being presented, and this guy that lived in, that we were about to dedicate this house to, I knew that the Holy Spirit was working on his life, and then at the end of that gospel presentation, that man received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And it was a bigger miracle than me getting to understand a language that I don't really know what they're saying. So that's one, that, that in the first century, in after the cost, I was speaking, lots of people were speaking, and other people were hearing it in their own language. So that's one type of speaking in tongues. Secondly, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, he talks about what we would call a prayer language. He says that when you pray, prayer is really Trinitarian. You pray to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are times when you're praying, and you just kind of run out of words. You just don't have the words to pray anymore. Like the English language can only take you so far. And then uh, the Spirit, Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit gives you utterances or groanings deeper than words. And that would be what we would call like a prayer language to God. That's just between you and God. Now, if you've ever been on a mission trip with us to a third world country, or you've been to like a Pentecostal charismatic church, and there's somebody next to you, and, and, and they're speaking in a language sort of privately between them and God, and maybe not quite so private, so you can kind of hear it a little bit too, that's what the Bible is talking about there. And so, Romans chapter 8, it's very biblical, and, and yes, and amen. I would just say, um, it, as long as it does not uh, disrupt corporate worship. As long as it doesn't disrupt corporate worship, that's where some maturity and discernment is required. And then the third thing, the third thing is direct revelation of God. That particularly in the first church in the first century, there would be, uh, and particularly before we had the Word of God, like that you can carry around in your hand, that God would give direct revelation and still does give direct revelation to His people. And somebody would stand up 
always require an interpreter. Now, you can imagine some of the confusion that that could cause. Uh, because how do you know, is this a word from the Lord, or was it just bad pizza from last night? I'm not sure. So you needed an interpreter to help you discern that. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, 12, and 13, the Apostle Paul speaks specifically about churches dealing with this issue. Now, at the Church of 1122, where are we? Well, we believe, again, in the full manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. And yet, it requires that. Well, well here's what we want to do in our worship service. We want to be a Spirit-filled, God-glorifying, point-to-the-cross, gospel-centered kind of worship service. And so, we never want to elevate uh, the one who has the gift, or the one who has been given the gift, but we always want to worship the gift giver. So, if you want to, uh, if you feel like, you know, your gift in worship is the tambourine and the banner, then praise God, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So run around with the banner. I would just ask that you, you know, we have like a banner section back over here, so it doesn't cause so much distraction. And, let me just tell you this too, um, if you think that's weird, if you think it's weird, like the gifts of the Spirit are weird, let me, let me assure you, um, the Spirit's not weird, but people are weird. There are some weird people. And spirit-filled people, sometimes they kind of elevate the weirdness, you know? And so I would just tell some of you in the room, some of you are weird, all right? You just are. But you're part of the family, and we love that you're in the family. It's just like I got some weird cousins, and I don't want to take them out of the family. I love my weird cousins. And here's what's something else about you that are weird. You don't know you're weird. You don't know it. That's why we love you so much, because if you knew you were weird, you would maybe work on it a little bit. But don't. Don't change the thing. We love you and your weirdness. Now, let me also say this, that I worship in ways now that 10 years ago I may have thought were weird. Some of you stand in the back and you see the hand raisers in the front and you go, that's weird. <laughs> I can't wait till you're up here with us, all right? Because, oh yeah, okay, it's going to get on you and in you and through you and your hands are going to go up. And so just be prepared. It just might be that you just don't know what you're talking about yet. But, but in our church, in our church, what we want to do is not be weird, but we want we, we are going to worship God the way God leads us to worship Him. And so in our church, there is the, the, we believe where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. But it just requires maturity, discernment, and you've got to be rooted in the Word of God. That we never want to exalt the person, but we want to exalt Jesus. And the gifts of the Spirit always exalt Jesus and not an individual person. Here we go, verse 5. So the Spirit comes upon them, and they start speaking in tongues. Verse 5, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. At what sound are these 120 people speaking in, in tongues, speaking in these languages? And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So you get what's happening? There's this big festival at Pentecost. The, the disciples and the apostles, the Spirit comes upon them, and they start they essentially start speaking the gospel, and all of these men and women from all of these different cultures, they hear this in their own language. So these people filled with the Spirit aren't speaking gibberish here. They are speaking in their language, but the other folks are hearing the gospel presented in their language. And, and it's just, I mean, obviously that would call bewilderment, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, look, I speak Spanish, and that guy is speaking Spanish, but he don't look Spanish to me. That's what's going on here. If there was an Italian guy there, he would hear it in, in Italian. And 
And if there was a, a, a person from Illinois, South Carolina, they would hear it in Native American redneck. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's how it would work. Or say, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, and Pontus and Asia, and I don't know how to say that one, and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya uh, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That word there, mighty works from God, in, in the Greek is megalalia. It, it literally means the mega works of God. But these men and women are gathered together and they are proclaiming the mega works of God. That is what worship is to be about. And when we get together in this place and in this room, that we proclaim the mega works of God. Pastor Ben talks about it all the time. The bands up here singing is not karaoke. It's not sing-along. It is we are proclaiming the mega works of God. We're not proclaiming us. We're not proclaiming how good we are. And if you kind of sit down and be like, well, I thought that was too loud, and I didn't really like that song. Well, that's fine, because we weren't singing to you. We all together are singing to an audience of one. We are proclaiming the mega works of God. And the cool thing about this is that when any, when any church planner plants a church, they have some contextual decisions to make. And the style in which they do church will determine in great part the type of people that they reach. For instance, at the church of 1122, we decided to preach and teach in English. That was kind of an easy decision for me because it's the only language I know. But as soon as we did that, we knew there were some other people that we were not going to be able to reach. Now, I am not opposed to, to preaching and teaching in another language, and there may be a day here where we have a Spanish service, but it won't be led by me. You know, can you imagine that? Almost out of state. It's like, it's just a, right? I don't even, the only other thing I know how to say in Spanish is, don't dance out of my deal, Because I've done mission trips to Mexico, and you will have to ask that question a lot if you go to Mexico. Don't dance out of my So, that's all I've got. So, I don't know how to preach the gospel in Spanish or any other language, so we go English. At the very first church service, when Jesus was the first church planter, you know what language he decided to preach the gospel in? You know how he decided to contextualize the gospel? That it would be available to every person, to every tongue, to every race, to every tribe, that there were no barriers so that, that, that would hinder people from experiencing the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, this miracle of Basilea, or speaking in tongues, was was a fulfillment, uh, a partial fulfillment of Acts 1-8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the earth. I'm sure the apostles heard that and said, how in the world are we going to do this? And then in, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus says here, I'll show you. And they preach the gospel, and men and women hear it. Men and women from all over the world, they hear it in their own language. Verse 11, so both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? The NIV, the New International Version says, and many were filled with awe. Do you know, this should still be the expectation of the church. Do you get this? One of the greatest sins in our country right now is boring church. The very first church service was not boring. The people, even people 
charismatics would have been stoked at the service happening at my house right now. You had doctrinal purity, you had a dance, you had everything in between. Am I stoked that my kids did that? Yes, and amen. Let me tell you what I'm really stoked about. Okay, let me tell you what, who's going to hear about this on Tuesday morning in our staff meeting? I'm going to lean into our, our children's ministry staff and say, way to go, guys. Way to go. That you've created an environment that you can engage the passion of God, the love of God, the truth of God in such a way that my two kids don't see today as sweet, we don't have to, but dang it, we don't get to. Go to church. So we're going to do church right here, okay? That should be what church is supposed to be. Hey, you mean that this is just free? <laughs> you can guarantee you, um, your kid not going to church when they get to college, then make them go to a church that you secretly wish that you didn't have to go to either. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you make them go to a church where you really wish you didn't have to go, and you watch what? I know, 15 years of student ministry. That's why what we are trying to do here, I know it's not for everybody. There's all kinds of different types of churches that all honor God and meet different people and praise God for every different type of style of church. Right? We're not talking about one style is better than the other. But every one of those needs to be full of the Spirit and full of truth, glorifying Jesus and being fueled and filled by the Holy Spirit. And so these people are filled with all. Verse 13. But others, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. You know what I'm saying? These guys are drunk. These guys are just drunk. Isn't that awesome? You know that happens every week right here at this church? I don't know if they accuse me of being drunk, but there are some people in this room, and the Spirit fills, and the Spirit moves, and you encounter the living God. And then there's other people sitting in the, not necessarily the back, sitting all over the place, just going, uh just, just mocking. So this, this stuff's crazy. This stuff is just crazy. So it's why on my desk I have I have Galatians one ten. One of the elders gave me a, a copy of it on one of the prayer cards that we're supposed to memorize. He just handed it to me before the very first weekend here, and he just handed it to me. And I put it on my desk. Galatians one ten says, "Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? If I were still trying to please men, then I would not be a servant." So every week when I stand up here, my job is to win the approval of God, and that approval has already been purchased by, by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That my job can never be to please everyone here. You know why? Because it's, an, it's impossible. If even the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost didn't please everyone, then the overeducated redneck from Dillon, South Carolina, doesn't have a shot. Last weekend, in one of our services, right over here, there was this family that said that their lives were changed, they would never be the same, that God ruined their lives in the best way possible. And after the 9 o'clock service, there was a guy that fell asleep so hard in the back there towards the back, we had to wake him up because the 1122 crowd was coming in. In the same service. It's why after every sermon, I get, quite honestly, you guys are really, really encouraging. I get lots of Facebook email stuff, like, way to go, here's how God spoke to me, and I still get that one or two that be like, I think you were just drunk. It's how you didn't do it right, you know, and, and that's just, that's just how it is, that there are some, there are some people that receive it, and there's some that aren't, that won't. Jesus gave this parable, he talked about the parable of the sower, that the word of God is like a farmer who goes 
seed. And Jesus said he throws the seed in all different directions, and there was only one, one little batch out of the four different environments that produced a crop. And the seed went out the same to every different environment. But there was only one environment that received the seed, and that it produced a crop. I think what Jesus is talking about is that it is, it's not the delivery of the word, but the condition of the heart that determines whether you get something out of it or not. And again, I'm not advocating my responsibility. I have a very, very high responsibility of what happens here every time we gather together and worship the Lord. And I promise you, I study hard to try to be ready. And I do my best to try to deliver the truth of God full of grace in a compelling way, but always full of truth. But once it passes this stage, it is no longer my responsibility. It is the condition of your heart. Just like on the day of Pentecost, there were some people that saw the evidence of what happened, and they were filled with amazement. And then there were other people that mocked. Let me just push on you a little bit, especially you church hoppers. Listen, if you keep showing up to church after church after church, going, well, I didn't get anything out of that, and I didn't get anything out of that, and I didn't get anything out of that, well, guess what? Uh, guess what the common denominator is? It's you. It's you. As long as you're in a church where the gospel is rightly proclaimed. Now, I get style-wise, you know, you won't match up with every church in town, but you need to find a place and be submitted under the authority of that church, those local elders, and then not just show up to get fed all the time. But at some point, Christian, you've got to learn to feed yourself a little. Don't be a big, fat Christian baby that just walks into church crying and making a mess with your big diaper on and your umbilical cord, ready to plug in going, feed me, feed me, feed me. It's okay to be a baby for a little while, but then uh, then you've got to start walking and feeding yourself. And as you begin to do that, what you will begin to experience is the soil of your heart begins to become rich. And any little bit of seed that falls in there will produce a crop. And so that's what's going on here in the first century, the Holy Spirit manifests among the people of God, and there's still some people mocking. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them. He's going to preach a sermon. Every good preacher, right? There's that big old crowd, so he's going to preach. And here's his sermon. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, it's only the third hour of the day. You know what he says there? He's like, hey, those of you think these guys are drunk, they're not drunk. Why? Because they're Baptists. No, because it's 9 o'clock in the morning. That's his defense. You should love that, man. You should love that. He's going, no, it's not because they won't drink of the nectar of the devil. No, it's too early for that. Don't you come back later. So, these people are not drunk. Sermon here. If you ever have to preach a sermon, here's what you do. Ready? This is a beautiful model of a sermon. It's the first sermon in the very first church service. He starts out with an introduction, right? He, he's got to meet them where they are. Hey, you guys thought he was drunk. They're not drunk. It's too early for that. And then he's going to go straight to the Bible. So if you'll notice, every time I preach, we do an introduction. My introduction is usually something like, if you've got your Bibles, turn to, and then my intro is over. And then you go, what? You go straight to the Bible. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he's going to dig into the Bible. By the way, if you'll grab your notes real quick and just open them up and look real quick. Okay. We've always got this little tear-off. That's for you to let us know what's going on and how we can serve you better. 
And if you look at the notes that are for you, what is it, what's the predominant thing that you see on the notes? It's not a trick question. Scripture, right? The Bible. See all those Bible verses? Now, you get one thought from me. It says the point, and I got one sentence. I had to work all week to do that one sentence together. Isn't that amazing? But we made it real big, so it looks like I work hard. But here's, here's the reason. It's because uh, even if I have a lame sermon, I figure at least you could just read the Bible and the Word of God will do what the Word of God promises that it will do. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Word of God will pierce you exactly where you need to be pierced. And um, quite honestly, I'm not that smart. I, I don't think it's a good idea for you for you to just hear my opinion on how you should live life better. But week after week after week, what we're going to do is what Peter did in the very first church service. We're just going to open up the Bible, and then we're going to say, here's what it says, and then I will do my best to try to unpack it uh, for those of you that didn't have the opportunity to study this passage for 18 hours this week. And that's what we do week after week after week. And this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. By the way, Peter's going to stand up and attack these thousands of people. And if you'll remember, if you've been in Bible study before, that just about six weeks prior to this event, Peter was the same guy who couldn't even admit that he was a follower of Jesus in front of people. And now, fast forward six weeks, he's standing before thousands of people, and he's going to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. How in the world does that happen? Well, a couple of things. One is that Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, and Peter has experienced the resurrected Jesus, and Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me scare some of you. There are some of you right now, and you're just kind of on the edge of your faith. You're not sure if you're going to put your faith in Jesus or not, and you don't even fully know why you keep coming back every single week. In fact, you, you look at the person that brought you and said, I don't believe any of that stuff. And they go, well, can I pick you up next week? Yeah, that'll let Yeah, okay, I'll see you there. All right. This happening to you. And in the next six weeks, there are some things that you think are crazy, and you're going to be leading the way on them six weeks from now. You just got to trust me on this. Just believe me. Jot it down and tell God no, just so I can laugh at you in six weeks and say, I told you so. And you know how I know? Exhibit A. Exhibit A. I was an incredible mocker, especially the church and, and God's people at one point in my life. Never in a million years did I think that God would use me to do this, and he's going to use some of you. And the more nervous you are right now, the more right you are to be chosen. He's going to come after you and call you and draw you and fill you with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be one of the people that you, you make fun of now. Just watch me. I know it. So, Peter stands up, he turns to the book of Joel, and verse 17, he's going to read from the book of Joel. He says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, this was a big deal in the first century. Listen, daughters, everybody's a daughter, listen to me. In the first century, you didn't get a place in, in, in the church, right? Until the church started. And the Old Testament, and Peter wants you to know, and the Holy Spirit wants you to know that you have a significant place in the building of the kingdom of God. That the Holy Spirit would be poured out on men and women to prophesy. And while our roles can be different, that the, the, the advancement of the kingdom is for the men and women of God. And in the first century, this would have been, I mean, this was big, big news, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And prophesy doesn't necessarily mean tell the future, it means tell the truth. And the cool thing about the truth is it's also true 
in the future, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants, the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. A great and magnificent day. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, you might want to underline that word, everyone. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because there were men and women in this audience that Peter was preaching to going, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got a problem with that. Everyone can't be saved. Only the Jewish people, or only the religious, or only those that God favors. And Peter wants to say, no, 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 the gospel. The gospel, just like the words are going out from my mouth, and every person is understanding it in their own language, that the gospel is for everyone. Now, Jesus says in Matthew, Jesus says that all who call out Lord, Lord, will not be saved. But you see the difference? All who call out in the name of the Lord. Not just everybody that cries out Jesus. You see, it would be like in our context, in our culture, it would be like the difference between somebody who just goes to church and believes that there's a God and somebody who has surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus. That's why we talk about this all the time. That you have to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus. Not just believe that there is a God. Surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. And so it says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Now he's going to go to Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. In other words, everybody remembers Jesus. He was talking to a group of people that were around when Jesus was doing his miracles and teaching had been crucified and resurrected. So he's just reminding these people of what they'd seen in her, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of all men. Two things about this. First, it's part of what we talked about last week. How can it be the foreknowledge of God and you crucified? Well, God is sovereign over not only his own will, but our sin too. And secondly, this is like the most non-seeker-sensitive sermon ever of all time. Remember, this is opening day, and they've drawn a big crowd. I mean, they got the whole parking lot full, overflows full, everybody's packed in to hear the message. And most, most church growth strategies would say, well, what you want to do is you really want to make sure that people feel cared for. And so Peter goes, okay, so here's how we're going to start this. Everybody remember Jesus that God said, uh-huh, you killed him. Uh-oh, Peter, that's not very nice at all. I mean, I don't know that I would lead in with the you killed Jesus part. But here's the thing. It's true. It's true. We're going to come back to it because not only does he open his sermon with the kill Jesus, he's going to close with it too. Verse 24. And God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is very important. That church first started in the first century, it only had one message. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The church, when it started, just preached the gospel. It wasn't, here's five ways to be a better friend, here's three ways to improve your marriage, and here's two ways to uh, have kids that move out when they're supposed to. It, it wasn't those kind of self-help sort of messages. It was just one message. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And all of that is important. That Jesus didn't live just to be a good teacher, but we need Jesus' life because we need his we need his righteousness. So he lived that perfect life 
so that that could be imputed unto us. And that his death on the cross purchased for us our forgiveness. It purchased for us our forgiveness. That you and I have a sin debt that we could not pay, and it was paid for on the cross. But that's not the end of the story either. It didn't just purchase our forgiveness so we could live a guilt-free life and then be dead. But he was also resurrected from the grave to purchase for us victory over sin and death. So that the end of our life is not our last breath here, but he purchases for us eternal life, and his, his resurrection claims that victory over sin and death, and that's what, that's what he's talking about here. And then he's going to appeal to the Jewish folks in the audience, verse 25, he says, For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he was at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And what that means essentially is, hey, you remember King David? Everybody there loved King David. Well, before there was David, there was Jesus. Jesus was not just a prophet that was bestowed the Spirit of God in his baptism, but Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and was there from the beginning, verse 26. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence, brothers. I'm going to say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Paul, I mean, excuse me, Peter wants us to know, um, yes, David was a good man, and David was a, was a, a godly man, and David is dead. And just like David, we all have that same fate. That the death rate in first century Jerusalem was about the same as it is in modern-day America. It's right about 100%. Every one of us is going to die. And I know, well, that's a cheery Sunday morning sermon, isn't it? But this is where it goes. You killed Jesus, and you're going to die. Woo! But here's the thing. It's just true. It's just true. I mean, there will be a bunch of you in this room, and I will do your funeral. But you'll die before me. I mean, maybe, right? I could go out today. You don't know. But probably I'll do a bunch of funerals in here. And, and they'll dig a hole, they'll dress you up nice, put you in it, we'll throw dirt in your face, we'll come back here, even take a salad, and talk about how good you look. That's just how it's going to happen. Unless Jesus comes and calls us home before then. It is the reality. And so, what uh, Peter wants these folks to know on the first day of church is what I'm talking about here has, has eternal significance, verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, and this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He, Peter's saying, I'm not talking about something I believe in, I'm talking about something that we have seen and experienced. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So remember Peter saying, hey guys, these, these men and women, they're not drunk. What you are witnessing is what David and what the prophets proclaimed, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then verse 36, this is how he's going to close out his message. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. You might want to underline those words. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. 
page back to it again. He says this, listen, you need to know this. You need to know this for certain. That God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, that he is our Lord. Now, you know, some people might have gotten offended by this, and maybe they did. But what, what Peter wants him to know is he wants him to know for certain that they're not just mistakers in need of a life coach, but we're sinners in need of a Savior. It's why I tell us all the time that you and I are wretched, black-hearted sinners. Wretched, black-hearted sinners. You're not just somebody that needs to kind of work on some of your bad habits. No, no. Your problem is not that you have problems. Your problem is that you're the problem. See the problem? That's it. That, that it's not just a, it's not a future, better, slimmer, uh, less cuss words version of you that God's looking for. But by nature, the Bible says that we are objects of God's wrath. And I know, I know, I know we live in a world that's, that, that is not very popular at all. Right? People, our, our world teaches us that, that we, look, you're, you're a snowflake, you're a rainbow, all right? You're like a lollipop on this earth. No, you're not, all right? Your problem is not that you lie. Your problem is that you're a liar. Mine too. And that's just the beginning of the good news. If you end it there, it is not good news at all. Like I told you, JP had the flu this week, so we took him to the doctor. You know what you do? You take him to the doctor. Can you imagine if we had walked into the doctor and he's got the he's got this the runny nose and the watery eyes and the fever and the cough? And what if the doctor would have said, Who do you think you are to try to tell this little man how to live? I mean, maybe it's okay for you to have 98.1 temperature, but who are you to tell him that 101 is wrong? We'd be like, We're not going to you to doctor anymore, okay? There's a standard of health that we would like to be in. And it is it is love that diagnoses the problem. Not overlooks it. So please hear my heart. Please hear my heart. You are a wretched, black hearted sinner. And God will judge all of us because He is just. And when we sin against an Almighty God, it requires an everlasting punishment. Now, here's the good news. Here's the part that Peter wants to make sure that we know that you and I have crucified Jesus. And you think, well, I didn't crucify him because I wasn't there. The same. Would say the same thing. Hey, we weren't here six weeks ago. I had to work overtime. I was. I didn't crucify anybody. So what he's saying is, though it's your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, and it's that same sin that is forgiven at the cross for anyone who believes and receives, and that is the gospel. It would be like if you had a bank account and you were in debt in the trillions. All right, just imagine that. All right, you're in debt. Trillions, and you were to look at that and thought, well, if I work the rest of my life, I can never pay that debt off. And then Jesus took his bank account, which was trillions to the positive, and then just decided to exchange the accounts. That's what happens at, at salvation. That's what happens at the cross. The Bible says it this way. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, so that we could become his righteousness. That God takes our sinfulness, uh, the wretched black hearted sinners that we are, and he keeps his wrath upon his only begotten son on the cross, and then transferred or imputed Christ's righteous life to us, so that when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. When the accuser steps up and says, yeah, but you remember when you fill in the blank? And Christ is right there to go, yeah, I paid for that. That you are clean. That's what Peter's talking about. 
So let me tell you this, Christian, you need to hear that too. You need to hear that too. The gospel is not just about our justification, not just about getting our sins paid for, but being able to walk in that for the rest of your life. It's about our sanctification too. You can't pay for what has already been paid for. You can't earn what has already been purchased. And so we get to walk in the freedom that we are right with God. Not because we're better than anyone, but because we have surrendered to the one that paid for it on the cross. So verse 37, now when they heard this, remember he said, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they emailed the pastor and said, that's not very nice. No. When When they heard this, they were caught to the heart. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What should we do? And then the way Peter's going to answer is essentially this it's already been done. Everything has been done at the cross. Your sin nailed Jesus to the cross, and that same sin was forgiven on that same cross for everybody who believes and receives it. And so when they ask, What shall we do? Then Peter replies, But everything he's talking about is just a response because it's already been done. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So how about you? Are you far off from God? Are you far off? Not only was he talking about our church, who, who uh, chronologically was far off and geographically is far off, but some of you think you are far off from God, then Peter's first message at the first church would be this to you. Hey, you are not too far from God. And it's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so what do you do? He says, repent and be baptized. Those aren't action steps to get you saved. Those are responses to the fact that you are. Repent just means to change directions, to turn 180 degrees. If your life was heading this way because you were Lord of your life, then you turn around and say, okay, Lord, I surrender, and you are now Lord. And you get baptized. You go public with it. It's just a public declaration of your relationship with him. You just received that free gift. And then it says that, that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. And that, that means they didn't just raise their hand and just leave and never to be seen again. But they became a part of the family. been my prayer all week that when we got right here at 1122 at the close of the service today, that there would be men and women that would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would be cut to the heart because Jesus has done something in you. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered your life to Him, I want you to do that today. And, and listen, Christians, if you've been a Christian for a long time, I want you to be reminded of the gospel. Reminded that he carried the weight of your sins. That's not yours to carry anymore. That's not yours to carry anymore. You cannot earn something that has already been purchased. Well, maybe this morning, not because of my delivery at all, but just because of the movement of the Holy Spirit, maybe you're cut to the heart today, like I was when I was a teenager. Maybe you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Would you please bow your head right where you are? And if you would say that that's you, that today you would like to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And that was not your intention this morning, but He just came after you. And you have been cut to the heart, and you know that you're sick and tired of being the Lord of your life, and you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Would you just raise your hand where you are? Would you just 
just raise your hand and say, God, here I am. I surrender. I surrender my life to you. Just Father in heaven, Lord, I pray for anyone that has their hand up right now. God, I, we know, God, we acknowledge it's not a hand up that saves us, God, but it's just a surrendered heart. God, we thank you that you have purchased our forgiveness on the cross and you have purchased our eternal life through your resurrection. So, God, in this moment, for anyone who has not acknowledged you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that they would cry out in the name of the Lord. God, they would admit that they are a sinner, Lord. They would trust in you and they would confess you as Lord. God, I also pray for those of us who have been walking with you. That God, in our head, we can know and maybe even recite the gospel. But in our lives, God, we still think we're trying to earn it. God, would you let us know that the scoreboard has been turned off, that the victory is yours. You have already purchased it. And then, God, out of that confidence, would you help us to walk in a way that honors you in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Would you please stand your feet? At the end of our services, we give you an opportunity to respond, to respond to what God's doing, to respond to the Word. You can do that by bringing your tithes and offerings to one of the offering boxes around the room. I hope you'll move and do that if you decided to do that. Some of you will respond to God by coming down to the altars and praying. If there's nothing magic here, if there's something that happens when you move towards God, and that uh, if you pray to receive Jesus, you can go ahead and start making your way to the Connect Center. We have a gift for you, and then we would all respond. Declaring the magnificent works of God together through songs. Let us respond.